Hi, we're coming to you today from the Alamo with my faithful companion and co-laborer in the Lord, James McClory. This is Increment 24, a series called Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus. Klesios Epuraniu Metakoi, little Greek phrase that we may be homing in on during the course of this message. Recently, Pastor Craig Brown told me that he and his wife, Pauletta, like to have church service on Sunday in their home, and they also add music to it as they listen to a message. He recommended that song by Chris Tomlin called He Is, Is He Worthy? He Is. And there are many songs that if you want to do the same, you can have music added to your own family service or individual service. I was thinking this morning of Ferris Lord Jesus, and I think there's a line in there called, My Soul's Glory, Joy, and Crown. And that's kind of fitting to the coronation ceremony that we're studying in Hebrews 1, 5 to 13 which is evolving into a series within our Hebrews series. We might even call it the Corona series. It's so extraordinary that God would providentially arrange that our assembly would be not only in Hebrews, we see Jesus, but also studying at this time a great coronation ceremony in which the Corona of glory and honor is placed on the head of our Lord Jesus Christ following his perfection through suffering and death. So it's an honor and a privilege to be with all of you in heart and in spirit. As 2 Corinthians 7, 3 says, you are in our hearts both to die and to live together in Christ. And so let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our hearts to be able to see the path of the just, which shines brighter and brighter to a perfect day, according to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18. We ask this in the name of our Savior Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. We left off last time with the resolution of a dialectic. Two sides were presented in that dialectic, or that friendly argument, we could call it. And then a third alternative was posited. When Hebrews 1.6 says, and again, when he leads his firstborn into the world, he says, worship him, all of God's angels. The dialectic first asked, is that speaking of the incarnation or the parousia, as if there are only two alternatives? We found that a third alternative exists, namely that Hebrews 1.6 is speaking of the exaltation of God's Son. And in this case, the coronation of his Son in the heavenlies following his finished work on the cross. It is speaking of his being brought into the world of eschatological salvation, or what we like to call, just for our study, future world. 
This seems to be the most plausible interpretation, and we'll go with it. Since the word for world here, oikomene, oikomene, is the same word that's chosen for the world to come in Hebrews 2.5. That's a world that is not subjected to angels, but to the Son of Man, whom the angels worship. Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is the Septuagint or Greek translation 8, 5 through 7, will be dealt with in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. This world, O-I-K-O-U-M-E-N-E, is distinct from the world cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, into which the Son entered by incarnation in Hebrews 10.5. So we should have that distinction in our minds. The Word of God distinguishes our consciousness. It's a sharp, two-edged sword, and it divides asunder between soul and spirit. And that means, among other things, that it gives us a differentiation of consciousness. We should be distinguished in our mind, in our thinking, between the world into which the Son came in his incarnation, and the world into which he was led by God after his exaltation or as part of his exaltation. And so that world, future world, oikomene, Hebrews 1.6 and 2.5, has to be distinguished from the world cosmos into which the Son entered by incarnation. So, He entered into the cosmos, that's this present world in which we are now finding ourselves in this present evil age, in this present world, by incarnation. That's how the Son entered into this present world in order to live in what is called the days of his flesh. They involve crying and tears and calling out to the one who's able to save him from death, Hebrews 5.7. The Son entered this world by incarnation. He entered into the cosmos in order to become a partaker of blood and flesh, Hebrews 2.14, like those whom he intended to redeem. In doing so, he was made lower than the angels for a little time for the purpose, specifically the purpose of suffering and death for the purpose, in other words, of humiliation, not exaltation. Coming into this world, he entered a world that he intended to conquer, and conquer it he did. Have high morale, he said to his disciples, for in this world you will have tribulation, but I have conquered this world. And so, conquer it, he did. John sixteen thirty three. Hebrews 1, 6, then, is most probably not speaking about the entrance of the Son into this world, but rather his entrance into future world. It is most likely speaking of his exaltation, which we must distinguish from his humiliation and from his parousia, which is his second coming, as people like to call it. And that's when he comes again with salvation in Hebrews 9.28. 
So Hebrews 1.6 is speaking of his exaltation, which includes his ascension after his humiliation, after his suffering and death, after his resurrection. In his death, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. In Hebrews 2.9, by the grace of God. So Hebrews 1.6 is speaking of the son being brought into future world. Consequently, when he appears in the parousia, and that is an event we anticipate, he will be coming from the future. He will be bringing future world to earth, to this world, as it already is in heaven. He will come with salvation, Hebrews 9.28, because he will bring with him the eschatological salvation of future world. This is how the kingdom of God comes to earth. This is how the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. Those who argue that this verse speaks of the sons being brought into this world, and there are many who do, by incarnation, usually refer to Luke chapter 2. And that's where my mind went immediately before I considered these other things, before reflection, which is so important. In Luke chapter 2, they use the phrase which, or the passage that begins with verse 11, goes through 14, where it says that along with the angel who announced to the shepherds the birth quote, in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord, 2.11. Along with that angel, there were a, quote, multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace and goodwill to people on earth, Luke 2.13 to 14. Now, those who would argue that Hebrews 1.6 is speaking of the incarnation or the entry of the Son into this world, err on two levels. First of all, all the angels did not worship him. And the angels here are a multitude of the heavenly hosts, not all of them. And they say that this refers to the angels who had been commanded by God to worship the Son when he was brought into the present earthly reality. But that's incorrect also, because the angels in Luke 2 are not in effect, or not per se, praising or worshiping the Son. They are not praising the Christ child. Rather, they are praising God the Father in the highest heavens for the birth of the Savior, which is Christ the Lord. When God commands all the angels to worship his firstborn, notice all the angels and this goes along with the passage in Psalm 97.7 in which all those who were formerly idolaters will humble themselves and also worship him. All the angels, all you angels worship him is the command of God the Father to all the trillions probably. We, like, we hear that word a lot lately in relationship to dollars. Trillions here in relationship to angels because it's an incalculable number. An innumerable company of angels are pictured in festive gathering even now on Mount Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion and the holy heavenly city of the New Jerusalem. 
And so they are praising God the Father in the, the Luke passage, but in Hebrews 1, 6, the Father is commanding all the angels to worship his firstborn. It's when his firstborn was brought into the world, that is, to us, yet to come. The best is yet to come is a prediction that finds its richest meaning right here. Now, if Jesus already inhabits the world to come with its innumerable angelic inhabitants in festive assembly and the spirits of justified people made complete along with God, the judge of all, Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, then when he comes, will he not be bringing future world to earth and into this world? Will he not be bringing heaven to earth? As far as our present concern, it seems that we can safely say that when the firstborn was brought into future world, God commanded all the angels, worship him. That is the son. This is an integral part of the Old Testament proof of the son's superiority over the angels which in turn is part of the argument that the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the covenant of Sinai that was a word spoken by angels. He is the mediator of a better covenant. That is a direct quote of Hebrews 8, 6. And again, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That's a direct quote of Hebrews 9.15. And still again, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, Hebrews 12.24, whose blood is what ratifies that covenant, and who even now lives in, quote, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12.22. His blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel and better things than the blood of all the bulls and goats and rams and lambs shed in the old system. Abel's blood may well have spoken to God about mercy on Cain, his slayer. Jesus' blood speaks of God's mercy on all, including his slayers. Romans 11.32, compared with Hebrews 2.9, captures that concept rather neatly. So here, and Jesus, of course, prays, Father, forgive them to the Father about his slayers. So here we can take our stand, and here I do take my stand, at least, on the interpretation of Hebrews 1.6. Let all the angels of God worship him, or all you angels worship him, was commanded of the angels when, after God the Father had led up from the dead, listen carefully, after God the Father had led up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, then he brought his firstborn, that is, firstborn from the dead, 
into the inhabited future world. If we contrast the phrase brought his firstborn into the world, and in print this will reveal the Greek phrase in Hebrews 1.6, if we compare or contrast that with his entry into this world or the world in Hebrews 10.5 and his being led into the world of the future, the distinction is very clear. The firstborn from the dead is brought into future world, having already died and having been resurrected from the dead as the firstborn of many brethren, as we're going to find out. That's distinguished from the entry into the cosmos, this world, by incarnation or by being made flesh. Now, future world, where he was greeted with the worship of all of God's angels, the number of whom is incalculable and unknown to us, is where the Father brought him and ushered him in in his exaltation. Future world is what Hebrews 2.5 calls, again, that's important, Hebrews 2.5, the coming inhabited world. Now, that's the world that God has subjected to the Son of Man. That is, Jesus. It's the world where Jesus is present already. Now, picture that. Jesus present already in future world. He's present already as a forerunner for us, says Hebrews 6.20. In one sense, therefore, now listen very carefully. In one sense, therefore, we are already there. For we are in him and he is in us. So we are, in that sense, the spirits of justified people made perfect. And that means that we are the church of the firstborn on Mount Zion. We're already there in one sense. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, compared with Revelation 14, pictures that scene. Again, In that sense, we are already seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians 2.6 says. But at the same time, and in another sense, we are embattled in this present world in an agona, A-G-O-N-A, an arena of contest, In Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. So Ephesians 2, 6, we're seated with him in heavenly places in one sense. But in another sense, we're told to put up, take up and put on the full armor from God and resist an enemy, an invisible and supernatural enemy whose hatred is focused toward us and whose wiles and stratagems are designed to cause us to deviate from the path. In any case, it is certain 
that Hebrews 1.6 belongs to a catena of verses, a collection of verses that dramatically and colorfully portray the superiority of the Son over angels. The angels were commanded to worship the Son, and the command came from the Father. You see how this fits so splendidly well into the name that he inherited is better than the names of all the angels, and he became much better than the angels, and therefore the Father commands all the angels to worship him. It's remarkable that the PT says, quote, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he commands all the angels to worship him. Firstborn, prototokos, is a term used elsewhere in the New Testament. It identifies someone with preeminence over others. But it's also used to identify someone, a particular person, namely the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is called the firstborn from the dead, and that's extraordinarily important. The firstborn from the dead. In Romans 8.29, in thematic unity with Hebrews 2.10-13, God's Son is called the firstborn of a large family or of many siblings. And this goes into a correlation with Hebrews 2.10-13, to 13, which we'll get to down the road. In Colossians 1.18, the Son of God's love, as he's called in 1.13, is called the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18. In Revelation 1.5 and 6, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn from the dead. This time in connection with a kingdom of priests whom he freed from their sins by his blood, whom he freed from our sins by his blood. Now the first part of the Septuagint text or the Greek text, listen carefully, the first part of the Greek text not the Hebrew text, the Greek text of Deuteronomy 32.43, now a reference to the law, or at least an allusion to the law. It says, Rejoice, you heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Please notice that. That's what the Greek text says in Deuteronomy 32.43. Remember, the author of Hebrews is a Greek speaking Jewish Christian who is aware of and uses exclusively, almost at least exclusively, the Greek text of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the Greek text of Deuteronomy 32.43 that says, Rejoice, you heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. And that correlates splendidly. In fact, it's sort of reproduced. The last part of it is reproduced in Psalm 97.7, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 96.7. With regard to that term firstborn or the firstborn, there is also likely an allusion here to Psalm 89.27. Get that. Psalm 89.27. 
which again in the Greek text is 8828. can be confusing, I know. But the Greek text of Psalm 8927 from your English Bible is Psalm 8828. And like 2 Samuel 7.14, which is alluded to in 1.5, it's about the covenant that God made with David and with David's greater descendant, the son of David, who is also the son of God. So this is what the Greek text of Psalm 88.27 and 28 sounds like in your English Bible it's Psalm 89, 26 to 27. I'm reading from the Greek text, which is Psalm 88, 27 and 28. It reads like this. He shall call on me. That's speaking of the son calling on the father. Quote, my father, you are my God and supporter of my deliverance. Verse 28. And the father says, and I will make him a firstborn high among the kings of the earth. The PT doesn't quote this verse as such, but it can be argued that he alluded to it as a lead-in to his quotation of Psalm 97.7 in conflation with the Greek text of Deuteronomy 32.43 in Moses' song, as it's called. His use of the scriptures, that is the author of Hebrews, his use of the scriptures to make an adequate comprehension of the crucified and exalted Christ is ingenious, indeed. No doubt his creative and artistic genius, he had what Lonergan, Bernard Lonergan referred to as an artistic differentiation of consciousness, a special kind of gift of creativity, His creative genius was endowed and empowered by the spirit of truth. John 14, 16, 16, 13, and the spirit of grace, who is one and the same person, Hebrews 10, 29. I've said that this provides a key to the interpretation. You see, we've already dealt with two theological functional specialties in today's message. First, dialectic or dialectics. Now, interpretation. For the interpretation of Hebrews, we now have a special key. This epistle is about the exaltation of the Son. It's about his coronation, the placement of the king's corona upon him. Now, to tell us thy phalanx, consider this. Ever since we've been physically separated as an assembly, by design of God. We have been engaged with a series, within the series, a mini-series we could call it, within the series that we call Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus. This mini-series is something that I think I'll call the Corona series because we happen to find ourselves right in the middle of a coronation ceremony celebrated by many of the Psalms which reveal the exaltation of the Son whose name, the name above all the angels, is Jesus. And so I've been marking off these messages and someday they may even appear as a series within a series. I don't know how long it'll be. 
called the Corona series. Now, I'm speaking of the Corona, the crown of glory on Jesus' head, not any other Corona. Now, I want to shift into a higher gear with today's message. It is clear, even from a superficial reading of Hebrews, if you just read Hebrews straight on through, it takes you about an hour, I guess. It contains a mixture of what we call exposition, which is kind of theological teaching or Christological teaching, angelology, soteriology, eschatology, ecclesiology, homardiology, anthropology, demonology, satanology, all of these ologies, part of theology. A keen reader in the reading of Hebrews will also pick up that the scale tips toward exhortation, especially given the PT's own retrospective description of his sermon or his homily as a word of exhortation to lagu tes paraklesios, which means this word, referring to Hebrews, this word of paraklesis, which is encouragement. Generally speaking, Hebrews 13, 22. Exhortation, in distinction from exposition, is an admixture of morale boosting, an incentive to action, or to continuity in an action already undertaken. It involves a spurring on of an individual or of a group on a mission And it implies that there may be danger of drifting from mission focus or or the danger of caving in to the pressures encountered on a mission. The practical reason for the two elements of exhortation and exposition, picture them on two sides of a scale, exposition, exhortation. The scale dips a little more on the exhortation side, though exposition is also extremely important. This is a pastor writing, and his purpose is exhortation, the impartation of incentive to a group on a mission to keep on mission focus. And so the practical reason for the two elements of exhortation and exposition in this homily, and we could say that the reason for both of these elements also exists in all of Paul's epistles, in John's gospel, and in John's apocalypse, in Peter's epistle. In fact, throughout all the New Testament, there's an element both of exposition and exhortation. And that what we want to understand here is that the practical reason for this is that the recipients of these writings all find themselves, and may I put in parentheses, ourselves, in a critical moment in history and in a valley of decision on the map of God's plan for the ages. It's a plan which he purposed or proposed and is carrying out in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus, his son, in mind. 
and it's carried out through all the generations of the church. Very important. Ephesians 3.11 and Ephesians 3.21 will help you with that. Hebrews, therefore, issues a call, or it exists as a call, a summons for us to go on to completion. Or to perfection. If we define the term properly, it's a good word. Hebrews 6.1. This is not just a call to go on to maturity. It is a call to keep moving toward a perfection through suffering and through death to the old self and this old world. So that we become companions of Christ. Hebrews 3.14 talks about that. It is a call to go on to what we might call and what Kevin McCruden called perfect solidarity with Jesus. This is a perfection that is not perfectly attainable in this life. As Paul made clear in in Philippians 3.11, there's kind of a parallel passage there, kind of. Nevertheless, in this life, there is never a moment when we aren't doing the one thing that Paul spoke of. N-de, one thing, E-N-D-E, one thing, but one thing. That being pressing on to the mark of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which involves a forgetting of the things behind. Philippians 3, 12 to 14, that's kind of a paraphrase and a summary. The PT also recognizes that his readers, the recipients of Hebrews, are partakers of, of a heavenly calling. Klesios epuraniu metakoi. Partakers of a heavenly calling. That's Hebrews 3.1. And that they, we, must press on in obedience to that heavenly summons. Again, the elements of exposition and exhortation, E and E. In fact, we have three big E's here. We have exhortation and exposition, but we also have exaltation of the sun. These are all mnemonic devices. Mnemonic, not demonic. Devices that aid the memory. So the elements of exposition and exhortation are found in Hebrews and throughout the New Testament writings. You can see that in Romans or Ephesians. You can see that in Galatians. You can see that in all the, even the Gospels. And the reason is because Christians are inhabitants of two worlds. In one sense, they, we, are already in future world. Being in Jesus because of his perfection through suffering and death on our behalf, because of his perfection, 
we're already there in one sense. Sometimes we used to call that positional truth or our standing in Christ. Because of Jesus' perfection through suffering and death in our behalf, we're already there. In another sense, though, just as real, we are in this world, though not of it, in this world, though, and in it we are embattled. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. That's why Paul can say on the one hand, again, consider this. That's why Paul can say that on the one hand, his readers, that's us too, are seated together with him in heavenly places, with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 6. He's not kidding about that. That's not just a metaphor. That's a kind of reality. But on the other hand, at the end of the same epistle called Ephesians, he calls on us to take up and put on the full armor of God and to resist in this evil day against an invisible but powerful enemy, principalities and powers. In Romans, we are likewise urged to put on the armor of light, especially knowing the time. Romans 13, 11 and following, all the way through 14 should be considered constantly. Exposition is necessary so that we see the exalted Christ, God's Son, crowned with glory and honor. And in seeing him, to recognize our own destiny in him because of him. Exhortation is necessary, and that includes warning. Colossians 1.28 comes to mind. We preach Christ, teaching every man and warning every man or every person, teaching every person, warning every person, that we may present what? Every person we can, perfect in Christ, complete in him. And so, exhortation is necessary. Exposition is necessary Exhortation is necessary because we are engaged in the agona, A-G, long O-N-A, in which Jesus already fought, suffered, and died, and in dying, won the victory over the invisible forces of evil, including death, with whom we are now engaged on our way to perfection, a perfection that is only secured through adversity and through a transcendence of our old self and this old world. We don't attain it in this world, but we press on. I've said it many times before, and it bears repetition. To those who are advancing on toward an objective, they need orders repeated with repetition. They need principles repeated. 
I will repeat and repeat and repeat because, as Paul said, it's not grievous for me to do it. It's not boring or grueling. And for you, it happens to be safe. It happens to be the way that the truth gets riveted into your soul and helps you and helps me. Exhortation is necessary because we're in this world and we're engaged in a battle on our way to perfection. I've said it many times again, and it bears repetition. We are advancing with unit integrity toward an objective during a clash of two eons, two ages. The clash of the ages began with Christ's appearance in which he put away sin once and for all by the offering of himself, Hebrews 9.26. He calls us on after he's raised and exalted. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him, to persevere in faith toward a more and more perfect solidarity with him. Now, this requires choosing the one necessary thing that Mary of Bethany chose and was commended for in Luke 10, 42. And that is to hear his voice. And instead of hardening the heart like the majority of the Exodus generation, to push on through no man's land into the promised land, like Caleb and like Joshua. So stay with the word. Abide in him, and he in you. Consider Jesus our forerunner, who has entered beyond the veil of his own flesh into the holy of holies in the heavenly spheres. There, trillions of angels, perhaps, we don't know the number, they're innumerable, but let's just say trillions of angels are subjected to him and all without exception of the angels of God worship him. Consider him who endured fierce adversity aimed directly against him, who endured the cross and in approaching the cross, he assessed the shame and the disgrace as a little thing compared to the glory of his father and the joys of fellowship with his brethren in the Holy Spirit that awaited him, especially in the heavenly city. Consider him. Because now he resides in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the great king and of our great high priest. So for now, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach, because here we have no continuing city like the one we're going to. We have nothing to lose. 
but the veil of our own flesh and every weight that holds us back, especially the sin of unbelief that so easily entangles us. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to travel on the path of the just, which shines brighter and brighter to a more perfect day. As an assembly, we pray for the economic well-being of all of those in our church, for the health and well-being of all those in our assembly and our families and among our friends, but also for recovery of our nation and for recovery of the economies of the world, the nations of the world. And we know, Father, that you've chosen this time in history to reshuffle the deck. Some with power will be brought low. Some of the low will be brought up and exalted during this time. We know that you have a purpose in it that is multitudinous. It has many, many facets. We pray that you'll realize all those purposes. And until then, Father, continue to open our eyes that we may behold the path of the just, which shines in brighter and brighter to a more perfect day when we see Jesus face to face and rejoice with joy that is beyond description. We thank you for this expectation, for this hope, for a faith that works by love, for a faithful congregation, and for the unity of the brethren, which you are maintaining now through the Holy Spirit, through the word, and through our prayers. We thank you in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.